Hi everyone, hello again from Boston. Hope you guys are hanging in there. We are starting 1 Timothy and just a little bit of background. Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus has often been treated as a single group known as the pastoral letters. Um, I think it was designated by some scholar uh, way later, but it was designated as such because of the very practical nature of these letters. Now, Paul's other letters are addressed to churches, but these are addressed to individuals uh, such as Timothy and Titus. And it, it was most likely written when Paul was imprisoned in Rome or towards the very end of his life. And clearly, 2 Timothy was written while he was awaiting the result of his trial. So in 1 Timothy, the purpose seems to be to give some guidance on matters such as choosing the choosing of church officers and the resisting of false teaching. And he wants to provide Timothy with necessary guidance so that uh, should he not meet him again, because this is again toward the end of his life. And in Titus, which we'll go over later in DT, uh, a similar situation uh, as Timothy, um, because Timothy was left with the responsibilities to pastor the church at Ephesus, and Titus is also in a similar situation in Crete. So both letters are meant to help to strengthen both of them in carrying out this difficult task of ministering in these areas. So may we all be encouraged, as we are in SoCal and the Northeast, to uh, be strengthened so that we can carry out the task of ministering at our respective posts. Now, going from to verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God. And I noted here again this phrase, by command of God. Sometimes he says, by the will of God, but here it's command. And I just noted here that Paul sees his life as under orders, a servant. Uh, sometimes he uses the word slave. And this is such a departure from the spirit of our age, which insists on just personal autonomy and upholds uh, the that as the highest value, as uh, Pastor Ed said yesterday during MBS, you know, you do you. But here, Paul has a clear sense his life is under authority of God of Christ Jesus. So he says, I am an apostle by the command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus. And then it says in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, um, he you know, such a striking description of their relationship, a spiritual father and son. It's not simply a close relationship, but it says in the faith that is as a result of the gospel. And there is a lot assumed in this one phrase regarding how they got to forge such a bond. But we get clues of it through the book of Acts and others, but uh, letters. And it must have happened through all those missionary journeys together, sharing the struggles, going through the difficulties of starting up a church. Uh, and then, of course, all those times through exhortations of scripture and then Timothy applying it and obeying it and hope that we can say the same about our relationships, that we would never simply be defined by roles on an org chart, but we would have such affection uh, as we disciple other people and we would have these type of relationships. Again, uh, such a sweet expression, Timothy, my true child in the faith. Verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may be ch uh, charge certain persons not to teach any uh, different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul says, I urged you to remain at Ephesus, which means that there was something happening in the church that was causing Timothy to want to leave. And so he uses this strong word, I urge you, uh, because Timothy became a pastor of the Ephesus church. And maybe uh, we can speculate, given that in other places we read that Timothy was timid to the point where Paul, remember, had to exhort him in 2 Timothy 1, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power of love and self-control. So maybe Timothy was 
um, facing difficulty and, and that difficulty had something to do with the myths and endless genealogies here. And that would require of Timothy to muster up a courage to deal with these um, using his spiritual authority. And we can understand his reluctance then. It's hard to preach against false teaching. Man, like, um, you you know, you get labeled as someone who is too much. Um, and so you just have to use scripture and persuade and preach it. And this requires you to have confidence in the gospel. And so uh, I could see why Paul had to say, I urge you into to, to a large degree. Uh, we can personalize that as well to preach and 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 not hold back against false teaching and to false teaching regarding how to live out the gospel and then it says these myths and endless genealogies in other words just irrelevant stuff people speculating and uh, finding interest in conspiracy theories you know many scholars see in this phrase endless genealogy a reference to either second century gnostic uh, um, theology but there seems to be some false form of teaching that um, they were attracted to. And the genealogies was maybe a Jewish fascination of the mythical histories based on the Old Testaments um, found in other writings of the day. So then they were just focusing and nerding out on that. And it's that in comparison to the Word of God, which is actually the bolstering, bolsters one's faith and calls us to fulfill the Great Commission. And I think we need to be careful then in today uh, that we don't get sidetracked. Um, and maybe it's not endless genealogies, but whatever it might be, minor points in theology or entering into the political sphere as one example. Um, the evangelical right did that as a, as a huge mistake. And so instead of going in that direction, we need to maintain discipline, focus on the word of God to be trained and then really regard uh, what we have been given as an entrustment and as a steward that is a manager, a steward of all the resources and time being a big one. So uh, if that's the case, we can't get sidetracked by other um, interests because life is short. There's an urgency to share the gospel. And so let's not get caught up in things that won't end up training us and bolstering our faith. And then it says in verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so the aim or goal of this charge is love. So he's saying this uh, because out of love for them. And he's saying the reason or the source behind that love is of emanates from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so as a minister, we're going to be in positions to exhort and correct and steer people in the right direction. And Timothy was tasked to do this. And what helps is that we are, we know that we are doing this not out of some self-serving motive, but it says out of love for the, um, and that love emanating from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. So how does, how do we get that? Well, we need to t have time to adequately reflect, understand why you're doing what you're doing, and then repent for the areas that you're not doing things so that we can say that out of good conscience, pure heart, sincere faith, that that's what's motivating us. And then in verse six, it says certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. It's a, such a vivid and powerful picture of one who uh, ends up neglecting or cultivating a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And it's possible in the name of ministry that we get sidetracked by other interests, as I was saying earlier, and then we end up in vain discussion. Just a lot of unedifying babble or translated, a vain discussion is sometimes translated meaningless talk. And so I could totally see, get the, how this happens when you're not thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and you get sidetracked. 
And then you end up delving into topics or talking about things that are not necessarily for the building up of the person, but maybe it's just to feed your own ego or to assuage your own uh, insecurities. So you stay at the level of topics that you are comfortable with. And so to be sure, as a church, we're not big on doctrine and talk about fringe topics of theology like pre and post millennial or pre and post lapsarian. <laughs> but we can limit our talk to areas of our interest, though, of our comfort level instead of being other-centered and ultimately leading to mere Christianity, talk about the gospel. So we see Christian ministers not doing ministry and, and just nerding out on what they enjoy and avoiding the harder and more difficult aspects of ministry, which is beyond uh, whatever it is they like to talk about, uh, but to love people and to teach them to obey. So again, of course, we should chit-chat and talk about things, but our ultimate focus should be to just bring them to an understanding of the gospel. Verse 7, desires, desiring to be the teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. So people who don't adequately reflect or study, it can just come across as just confident assertions. Or my experience this, unless you study the DT text, look up the commentaries or you, so that you're not speaking heresy, putting in uh, adequate time to prepare and reflect, uh, so that you know what you're talking about, whether, whether you're sharing DT or giving Bible study, then I think um, if we don't put in that work, we will inevitably end up misspeaking in some way and wrongly focusing on certain aspects of the text and not really adding value. So uh, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So uh, the law is good. And, and this, of course, refers back to their desire to be teachers of the law. But do you know the law? And He's saying, what is the purpose of the law? He says, it's good. Um, and then it's good if one uses it lawfully. And that word lawfully is, can be translated properly. In other words, it comes from a good grasp of its intent and application. It says, uh, it's not to go on and on in needless speculation and talk about it, but um, the law's purpose is to provide the standard for holy living, a moral, provide a moral calibration on how we ought to live. So this reminds me of the movie Glory. Colonel Shaw says, train them properly, Captain. And that's right. We have scripture and it's good if we use it properly. And then the corollary to, corollary to that is that it's bad if we don't. So verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners. And so, um, in other words, those who, are de to de who ignore God's law, who deliberately rebel, and the ungodly, those who have no reverence for God. In other words, uh, it is the law is there to convict all of mankind who have refused to repent and acknowledge God um, and recognize that they are sinful and in need of, of sinning. And notice when you don't do that, the progression in this text, the progression of man's sin when they reject God, it's similar to what we learn in Course 101. It starts with the breaking off of a relationship between man and God. And then, and, and of course, that's the most intimate relationship. And then it leads to the consequence of enmity between man and man. And it starts with our circle our circle of close relationships. And then it says, uh, for the ungodly and sinners and for those who strike their fathers and mothers. My goodness. Uh, so then it, it can lead to that and then and then lead to mankind in general, enmity between um, man and man, uh, murderers, and then sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, um, and then it's just a comprehensive whatever else is is contrary to sound doctrine. And so um, another thing that I noted here is that all of this represents the breaking of the Ten Commandments because it starts with God breaking that fundamental commandment and then it 
um, has all these commandments about how you should relate with others that gets broken as well. So this is what happens when we are disconnected from God and deliberately break from our relationship with him. And then in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul clarifies, this isn't his own teaching, lest they think it's Paul's theology, but it's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this is our challenge too, when we try to call people to God's standard, his law, and then to repent, we need to remind ourselves, it's not particular to our church or GP, like Pastor Ed said yesterday at MBS GP thing, uh, or some personal preference of the leaders, but in accordance to the gospel. And then, so if that's the case, we need to make sure that what we teach is in fact, um, and, and what we teach and live out is in fact in accordance with the gospel. And so Paul says, which I have been entrusted in that sense of entrustment, that guarding that good deposit so that uh, the way that I teach and live out the gospel is a way that is accurate to the gospel itself. And then that gets passed down to the next generation. So I think about the Bibles and thinking about you guys in SoCal, as long as you hold yourself to that standard, that even if you're reluctant to do so, like Timothy seemed to be, we can eventually obey and speak with authority to teach and exhort according to God's standards. And then Paul then shifts to his personal testimony in verses 12 and on. And then I, I really like this. Verses like these does give us a window into Paul's self-understanding and self-image. As confident as he is as an apostle, as strong as he is in projecting spiritual authority, this confidence in the gospel means a deep awareness of God's grace upon his life. And if and, and if we base our confidence on ministry success, then as soon as we fail, we're going to start to lose that confidence. So Paul roots his apostolic authority and leadership in the grace that he has received, for which he is so thankful. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And then he says he's aware that God appointed him, entrusting him with this message. And then him, like who is he? And then he says in verse 13, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Uh, other translations says instead of insolent opponent, a violent man. And then he says, yet, but I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So uh, we've been doing two-minute testimonies in Boston, and it's a testimony of how God delivered us from the life we lived when we, quote, acted in ignorance. And I think we can put in our own words, our own testimony here. Instead of blasphemer and persecutor, what words would you use? I was a self-centered loner. Whatever word that captures your life before Christ, and then we can appreciate God's mercy and how he rescued us and appointed us as ministers. May we never fail to marvel at how God has led us to where we are today. And then finally, in verses 15 and on, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What is a trust, trustworthy saying. It's the gospel. Uh, all, it's almost like a script. This, the saying is trustworthy. And, and the script is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think we can do no worse than just to repeat that. Start your prayers this way. That uh, often that's how I start my prayers. Lord, I am a sinner. Uh, I am the worst of sinners. And yet, that's why you died on the cross to save people like me. So when we do that, when we utter such words and such truths, we can never stray too far. Uh, if we go back to the trustworthy saying that, um, uh, and so then then we, we won't forget that we are sinners and we won't grow proud and believe in our own hype that when we're 
clinging to this reality that God saved a sinner like me. And so, but I receive mercy for this reason. Uh, and then it says, uh, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So, so encouraging. Jesus might display his perfect patience. It's translated unlimited patience. His patience has never ceased, has no bounds to sinners like us. And that should encourage you and I to repent, to go to him with our sins, to not hide and engage in this pattern of uh, feeling self-absorbed whenever we fail or deceit. We can always repent and go back to him because he has unlimited patience towards sinners. And that's good news. Uh, it's on that basis that we can minister. And that's a good grounds to base our life in general because all uh, other arenas in life, we need to achieve something to be qualified. Here, the only basis of our qualification for eternal life is that we admit that we are sinners. So, of course, uh, Paul ends with a doxology, a song of praise to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Uh, amen. So I'm going to end there. Um, really miss you guys. I hope that you guys are hanging in there. It's been raining out here in Boston. Had to get some rain boots, something I never thought of really getting in California. So praying for you and please pray for us. And that's it for today.